the last half or the second half of Revelation chapter 12 tonight. Last week in the first section of chapter 12, we talked about how this um, chapter provides three perspectives or camera angles, so to speak, on the great cosmic conflict between God and Satan that has lived out on the earth or felt on the earth through the devil's ongoing war against the saints, against God's people. John tells us once again in verse 6 that, uh, for 1260 days, a number that I hope now we can see as symbolic for the time between the Lord's ascension and His return, the church on earth will experience both suffering and safety, bold testimony in her witness and bitter trial, alienation from the world in the desert, but nourishment there from God. Again, from His ascension to the time of trauma just before His glorious return. But the overall point here in stepping all the way back to see creation's beginning, to see human history, and the end of all things is to see, to know once again that God has won the victory once and for all over all the forces of darkness and evil in His Son, Jesus Christ. That even though they will suffer as a result of Satan's defeat as he takes out his anger, rages against us, God will protect and nourish His people spiritually all through their time in the wilderness. Never leaving, never forsaking, never forgetting about them until the Son returns for His bride. The church, take heart, beloved, our God reigns. And the victory of Jesus in this great cosmic conflict guarantees complete acceptance and our own victory before God. Let me pray and we'll continue. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I ask for your mercy. I ask for you to settle my mind and my thoughts and my mouth. That your words would become my words. And that you would enable every person to hear and to understand. I ask this, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So let me read verses 7 through 12 of chapter 12 to begin here. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because he knows that his time is short. So John sees a complimentary vision now that's going to show the same conflict, verses 1 through 5, and its sequel that we read about in verse 6, but from, again, a different perspective. Verses 7 through 12 stand in the middle of verses 1 and 6, and 13 through 17 as the foundation of both those parallel visions. Now the birth of the woman's seed on earth, the virgin's son, Zion's male child, and his subsequent exaltation to the throne of God, That is seen now as the turning point of the cosmic conflict from the perspective of heaven. If you remember, in the book of Daniel 10, verse 13 and 21, and Daniel 12, 1, Michael, 
the archangel, seen here in verse 7, is a great prince in the invisible spiritual realm who comes to the aid of God's angelic messengers in their mission and stands guard over God's people. His power and holiness make him the fitting captain of the hosts of God's loyal angels as they join in the battle with the dragon and his angels. And notice once again here in verse 8, that the war that arises at this time, that is, after the resurrection and ascension of the Son, in verse 5, is brief. At least it reads that way. The dragon no longer has any strength. There's no place for he and his forces anymore in heaven. And as a result, in verses 8 and 9, they're thrown down to the earth. Once again, Jesus alludes to this taking place, or did allude to this taking place, when he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In the ministry of his disciples, yes, Jesus saw this coming victory and the devil's fate that would occur as a result of his death and resurrection. That's what we read in verse 5. A loud voice in heaven makes this great declaration in verse 10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down to the earth, right? who accuses them day and night before our God. This battle symbolizes the truth that Satan has, and I'm quoting here, been disbarred from his status as a prosecutor in the court of divine justice. His accusations have no weight anymore. They carry no authority for those of faith, and they never will again. That is reason to sing victory in Jesus. We often have read of Satan's accusations in Scripture as he constantly tried to bring indictments against God's people, not realizing that mercy triumphs over judgment, of course, that God himself was going to undertake to remove the guilt of his people. Satan alleged that Job was no more than a bribed servant who would curse God to his face. If he stopped blessing him so much, he was wrong. On the other hand, the accuser's charges against Joshua, not the book Joshua, but the high priest after the exile, those charges of Satan against him were verified in the vision of Zechariah the prophet when it was revealed that Joshua was defiled. His filthy garment showed a guilty heart in Zechariah 3, 1 through 3. And yet the Lord rebukes Satan there and commands that Joshua's stained clothes be replaced by festal robes in chapter 3. Verses 4 and 5, showing him a preview of the full and final cleansing that was to come when God's servant, the righteous branch, arrived in Zechariah 3, 8. That is what the banishment of the accuser from heaven means, beloved. That cleansing branch, the branch that cleanses, has arrived. Jesus cleanses us of the guilt that the accuser tries to sentence us with before God. The woman's son has been born and lived and died and rose again and ascended in victory, Satan can never again lodge an accusation against those for whom the Lamb of God shed his blood. In verses 10 through 11, the accuser of our brothers has been conquered by them. We read that there, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So this battle that results in the expulsion of the dragon from heaven is not describing the original conflict before Adam fell, when Satan and a third of those angels who had been created good inexplicably turned against their God and Creator. Rather, the war that John sees in heaven, in verses 7-12, through is a symbol for the great battle that was fought on the earth 
when Jesus suffered and died on a cross and then rose from the dead and ascended back to the Father. The dragon's banishment from heaven to earth signifies the coming of God's kingdom and the authority of his Christ in verse 10. Remember that at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, back in 11, 17, and 18, the heavenly voices celebrated the final coming of God's kingdom when all opposition to the rule of Jesus would be eradicated from the earth. But that's not how this battle's victory reads. The coming of his kingdom that is being celebrated here in verses 10 through 12, precedes that final victory, since it speaks of the devil being deprived of his authority to indict believers, becoming aware that his days are now numbered, and venting his frustration by wreaking havoc on the earth. This is the kingdom that was promised by Jesus, and was fulfilled in the ministry of his disciples through his death and resurrection. That's his enthronement in heaven and pouring out of the Spirit and power on all his people demonstrates. Mark chapter 1 verse 15, Mark 9, 1, Acts 2, 30 to 33. From the perspective of heaven, this coming of the kingdom produces immeasurable joy because the accuser's authority to prosecute our brothers has been nullified by the shed blood of Jesus. The referent for their joy at the seventh trumpet at the end was that God was ending everything, rewarding his saints, judging evil. Here the joy of this battle's victory is that Satan can no longer accuse God's people. When you wonder then, if it's all math to God, that that's what you are to him, a balancing of the books and you're just another forgotten number and a million numbers to him, you remember this text that all heaven rejoiced as Jesus said it would in Luke 15 at your salvation, your salvation, each one of you that are saved. It's evidence of the victory of Jesus that Satan's accusations carry no weight. And beloved, they never will. It doesn't matter if they're true or not. That is how it looks. That is how you look from heaven, but to the earth. The defeat of the great dragon brings increased trauma and woe in verse 12. So once again, we find in the next sequel to the great battle, Satan's rage to destroy God's people through deceit and violence will be thwarted by the church's divine protector. So let's pick that up in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So the sequel to the cosmic conflict that we saw so quickly in verse 6 is now magnified for us so that we can see more detail, right? In verses 13 and 14, the woman flees to the wilderness because the dragon, having been thrown down to the earth, is pursuing her, trying to destroy her. And the text says she was given the two wings of the great eagle, symbolizing her escape in the same 
exact imagery God had used in the Exodus. Remember? To recall the Exodus. In Exodus 19.4, the Lord said, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. The eagles' wings are a symbol of God's divine and saving protection of his people. Remember, there was no eagle present in the Exodus or during the Exodus. They weren't literally being carried on the wings of an eagle or on the wings of anything else. It's a metaphor for God's divine protection. They are not these eagles' wings here, as some commentators have tried to say, a symbol for the United States, since the eagle is our national bird, which, by the way, it's a very good thing then that Ben Franklin didn't get his way. Does anybody know what Benjamin Franklin wanted the national bird to be? A turkey. Thank you. That would have been anticlimactic. But again, there, there are commentators, and I, I would respectfully disagree with these brothers that um, put all of this that we're reading here at some point in the future, right? Sometime during the Great Tribulation, this specific period of seven years, or at least the first three and a half, based on, you know, Daniel's um, alleged missing week, linking it only to Jews and say that this ability to fly safely into the wilderness could be, and I'm quoting, some kind of massive airlift that will rapidly transport these fleeing Jews across the rugged terrain to their place of protection. And since the eagle is the national symbol of the United States, it's possible the airlift will be made available by aircraft from the U.S. 6th Fleet in the Mediterranean. Oh, okay. Beloved, this eagle is not the United States. And that's not what the text is remotely referring to here. I mean, do, do, do you realize how much conjecture we could make if that's what we're going to do with the text? This is God's protection in the wilderness of this world for us, as the Israelites experienced in the wilderness. In the wilderness, she is fed just as Elijah and Israel were by God's special care and provision. Exodus 16.1, 1 Kings 19.4-8. If we try to interpret the book of Revelation by putting specific names on what each thing is and hoping that we're right because that's the best we can do, We've at the very least missed its point entirely since the purpose of the book is to reveal, not to conceal, and not to create confusion. So, beloved, we're not meant to interpret Revelation by going outside of it and bringing things into it as though these visible things are how we can interpret and know God's word is true. Our redeeming and loving God has placed His people, Messiah's mother, in this particular vision beyond the reach of her great enemy, flying away from the serpent in verse 14. So what does Satan do as a result of not being able to catch her? He launches a new but a very old strategy, actually. How did Satan begin his assault on mankind? What did he do? He questioned the Word of God to deceive Adam and Eve. Look at verse 15 here. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. In the book of Revelation, throughout, what comes from one's mouth symbolizes words and the power of words. 
This is why John sees later a sharp or earlier saw a sharp sword proceeding from the mouth of the Son of Man in 116. Remember, that sword is his sovereign pronouncement of judgment that will destroy false teachers unless they repent back in 212 and 216. This same Son of Man, armed with the exact same sword proceeding from his mouth later in 1911 and 13 and 15 and 21, is the faithful and true captain of heaven's great Calvary and the very word of God himself. The opposite of what comes out of the mouth of the dragon, lies, deceit, false doctrine. And remember how powerful the word of his prophetic witnesses was in 11.5, in the testimony of the church here in verse 11. Look at how powerful this is. It's so strong back in chapter 11 that if anyone tried to harm them, fire flowed from their mouths and devoured their enemies. The word of God stands. It cannot be overturned or stopped, and it's not chained. There's power in the text, beloved, not in our interpretations. In contrast, later in chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, John will see deceiving demonic spirits in the form of frogs emerging from the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophets sent out to gather the world's kings to wage war against God. The floodwaters coming from the dragon's mouth here symbolize his deceptive words in these days that if believed would drown the church's faith and destroy our lives. And evidence of this very threat was already seen and warned against in the churches of Asia in those seven letters in the form of the lies of the Nicolaitans. Remember? And that woman Jezebel, her promises of deeper knowledge into the secret things of God in 2, 2 and 6, 2, 14 and 15, 2, 20 through 24. Think of John's instructions in what is technically his first letter, 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, when he called the church to use discernment in testing prophetic spirits because many false prophets controlled by the spirit of the Antichrist Denying the incarnation in that case had been, had gone out, he says, into the world. Yes, this is, they're living in those days. When out of the dragon's mouth pours filth that would drown the people of God if they believed it. And the prophet Isaiah, as we think about how to deal with this, the prophet Isaiah rebuked Israel for thinking in the midst of this onslaught of floodwaters, they could find their own place of refuge. To protect them in Isaiah 28, 14 and 15. It's foolishness that is antichrist in its motivation to think we could rely on ourselves in this time during the onslaught of the enemy. We need to be vigilant and be aware that we are currently being attacked with nonsense from the enemy all the time. That's the main way he's coming after us. Again, don't fear the dark. God made the dark. Right? Fear the lies that come from lying mouths, beloved. That's why you should even test me, right? Test what I say. Don't just sit there and accept it because I said it. This is futile, right? It would be futile on our part to try and fight against this in our own strength or rely on ourselves or not be aware of it because 
as Isaiah writes to Israel when they were in the danger of in danger of trying the same thing, not relying on God. Hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the secret place. Your covenant with death will be canceled and your pact with Sheol will not stand when the overwhelming scourge passes through Isaiah 28, 17 and 18. Beloved, the only place we can stand safely against the devil's onslaughts in Isaiah 28, 16 is the tested cornerstone laid by the Lord himself in Zion. When the heavenly woman finds her refuge in the place prepared for her by God, he then promises her what, beloved? Go back to Isaiah and listen and understand how now the image makes so much more sense. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. Isaiah 43, 2. The wording of verses 15 and 16 here reminds us again of Moses' day. When the ground was opened by God and did what? Swallowed up the fake priests, poisoning Israel with their nonsense. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in Numbers 16, 31 and 33. The ground literally opened up and swallowed them. All the patterns are there, beloved. They've always been there. God writes for the sake of the clarity and confidence of his people in Revelation by signaling to us, In redemptive history, look back there, look back there. The earth will be opened up to swallow the dragon's deceptive and pretentious lies in order to protect the people of God from spiritual betrayal. Satan has now then been thwarted twice in this text. How angry do you think he is? He was unable to consume the son that the mother was giving birth to, and he's been unable to drown his mother in a river of lies, a flood of lies. So, beloved, what does Satan do? He turns to wage his war against, in verse 17, the rest of her offspring. That is, those who listen to the Lord and hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ over them, in verse 11. He'll carry out this war, Satan will, as we'll see, God willing, next week, through the beast in chapter 13, verses 2 and 7, who Satan is about to summon and will rise up from the sea to be given power from the dragon to wage war on the saints. That's what has happened as a result of the victory of Jesus right now on the earth. Again, when John mentions the rest of her seed, we're being reminded that word signaling to us of Genesis 3.15, which is what we see being fulfilled in the defeat of the dragon. The woman's other children share her son's victory as they testify, I'm sorry, as they testify of their faith in Jesus the Lamb, which is what shows their faith to be genuine. They believe Jesus. They don't believe the devil's lies because the woman here is distinguished from the rest of her children. Some would identify her with, in this text, a Jewish remnant who believes in Jesus and the rest of her children then as Gentile Christians. But as we've seen, I think, in John's other visions, distinct symbols don't usually point to different reference, right? They usually refer to differing perspectives of the same or on the same referent so far in Revelation. The protection of the mother here promises that the church will never finally perish, beloved. And the war of the dragon against her offspring... 
What does that mean? As we, you and I, reproduce through disciple making to all the nations. Genesis 3.15, right? The serpent's head has been crushed. And as a result of that, the mandate of Jesus in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, to make disciples of all nations, right? This calling is the new covenant fulfillment and realization of the command in Genesis to the man and woman to be fruitful and multiply. That same command stands in Matthew. Go, make disciples, baptize them and teach them. That's being fulfilled now. Evidence of the serpent's head being crushed and the seed of the woman and his offspring and her offspring spreading throughout the world as the gospel goes out reminds us. This all reminds us that God shields the members of the church, not from physical violence. They'll be dealing with that. But from spiritual destruction, she is impervious to that through the means of the truth of the preached word of God. So, beloved, don't be afraid tonight. Whether my view, the view that I have of the end times is correct, or whether the view that many of you have of the end time is correct, whether, whether these things are coming as I see them or as you see them, the story's already written, beloved. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God has spoiled the ending of this movie. Look at verse 11 again. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. How are we, how are you and I, meant to understand the truth that we have conquered Satan? We have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Oh, beloved, look at verse 11 again. We've conquered him by clinging to Christ. We have conquered him by being washed in the blood of Jesus. That's how. He has won the victory for us. Therefore, we are indestructible. What is the word of our testimony? It's not these personal stories we have, although those have value. That's not what the text means here. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ in which it is proclaimed by God that all who believe will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from things like the wrath of God and the dragon's war. Satan cannot take these things from us because Satan can no longer accuse us, beloved. Paul's point in Romans 8 is that let it be Satan himself that would accuse you, the accuser of the brethren. And what if his accusations are true? What if we have done what he accused us of? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the answer. God has decided to be for us. That's how we conquer. That's how even now we are more than conquerors, Romans 8 says. Read that language into Revelation 12. And it's talking of conquering. How? We're more than conquerors now because Christ loves us and God loves us and has justified us with an infinite love and complete and total salvation. That's how you and I are conquerors now, today. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. That's the one who's for us. 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Let Satan do it. It's God who justifies. God is greater than Satan. Who is to condemn? Let it be Satan. Let his charges be correct. Christ Jesus is the one who died for my sins. More than that, who was raised, the text says, who is at the right hand of God. That's important, beloved. That's why it's important to believe that Jesus is reigning now, and he's not on some kind of probation until the end. He's reigning now. He's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. When God needs, which he doesn't, this is just for the sake of our hearts, to know that we are there and that we are his, he only needs look to his right, where his son is interceding for us in the place of ultimate authority and power in the universe to which he ascended and is reigning from right now. I love that. I love that Paul gives us for our assurance in knowing that our salvation is fixed and that we can't lose God's love for us. What's, how does he prove that to us? Because Jesus, the one who has freed you, He's seated at the right hand of God right now. That's how important the ascension of Jesus is. The part of it we don't talk about as much, right? Beloved, the dragon is waging his war right now. The enemy's at work right now in this place to make you doubt what God's word said is true. The enemy uses things like our possible disagreements over things like this. Which is okay, right? The enemy will use things like that to make you doubt all of God's word. Right? But, beloved, take heart. How, how much do you think we're all able of grasping at any given time? Right? Just rest in the truth that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Nothing can separate you from God's love. You're fully justified. You belong to Him. Spiritually, you are indestructible. Even if physically, you would suffer even death. It's because of Christ that the devil's raging, as horrible as it is and will become, is really, from heaven's perspective, nothing more than the tantrum of death throes from a snake God has defanged for the sake of his people forever. So when we worry about the future, right, and what the changing times mean for our lives, for our children's lives, And for some of us, our grandchildren's lives, right? What does it mean for my soul? What's going to happen to me? Beloved, in the midst of all that noise, be still. And know that He is God. And remember His Word to you. Remember it. Remember it. The heavens are rejoicing Because they know how this war ends. And God in His grace has revealed their praises to us. That's how certain things are at home, beloved, for you and me. The victory of Jesus is the, in this great cosmic conflict, guarantees our complete acceptance and our own victory before God. Once again in the Before John starts another cycle of seven in the bowls, he pulls all the way back here in this 
hinge of revelation to say this is what's going on. This is a cosmic conflict between God and the devil. This is how it goes. This is how it ends, right? Take heart. Jesus Christ has triumphed. And he has triumphed for you. Believe him. Believe him.